Good morning, and it's good to be with you again. Uh, here we are again in your living room. We are closing out our series in the book of Daniel today, and we're going to be in Daniel chapter 10, verses 5 through 14. I want to start with this story about a guy in a certain town named Big Mike. Big Mike owns a bar, and he's well known to be the strongest guy anybody's ever met. So in Big Mike's bar, there's a standing bet. Uh, for $50, you can try to win $5,000 from Big Mike by beating him in a feat of strength. And the way it works is Big Mike takes a lemon and squeezes both halves of it until all the juice is gone and then hands it to you. And if you can get out three more drops of lemon juice, you win 5,000. If not, Big Mike gets your 50. So as you can imagine, word has gotten around and every no-neck monster you can imagine has been through Big Mike's town and has tried the bet. NFL linemen, professional wrestlers, power lifters, juiced up guys, and nobody's won. So one night, in walks, into Big Mike's bar, walks a squirrely little guy uh, with tweed jacket and bow tie and bald head and Coke bottle glasses and sits down on the bar stool and plops a $50 bill on the bar and in a high squeaky voice says, I'll take the bet. And everyone dies laughing. But a bet's a bet. Big Mike pulls out a lemon and his big butcher knife and slices it in half. And in that catcher's mitt of a hand, he just squeezes and squeezes until the both halves of the lemon are just nothing but an emaciated rind. And he hands it over to the stranger, and the stranger, without even changing expression, without even seeming to strain, takes the lemon in his hand and begins to squeeze. And everyone in the bar is astonished when they see a drop fall onto the bar, and then a second, and then a third, and they all cheer, and then a fourth, and a fifth, and eventually the stranger gets nine drops of lemon juice out of that wasted lemon rind, and they give him a standing ovation. And Big Mike has never had to do this before. He goes back into his office and opens his safe and comes back out with $5,000 in cash. The stranger takes it and, and puts it in a briefcase and clicks it shut, hops off the stool and is headed out, out the door. And suddenly someone says, hey, hey, mister, who are you anyway? And he says, well, nobody special, really, just your friendly local IRS agent. Now, that story, the moral is that often there's a lot more going on than what our eyes can see. And that's certainly the case in our world today. The, the pitch I want to make to you, the, the moral of our story of chapter 10, before you even read the text, is there is more going on in our world today than what our eyes can see. And we need spiritual vision. We need the ability to be aware of those, those unseen realities and to live in that unseen reality if we want to live the right kind of life in the world today. I'll, I'll, I'll show you what I'm talking about in just a moment, but let's get into the text just to give you some background so you know what's going on in chapter 10. First part of chapter 10, Daniel gets a vision from God. Now, by this time, Daniel's probably 90 years old. He gets a vision from God, and in the vision, he sees violence and war and awful things happening on earth, which, of course, disturbs him. When he wakes up, he wants to ask God, what did this mean? And so he begins to pray. And ordinarily, when Daniel prays, things happen. We've seen that already in this series. But in this case, nothing happens. Days go by. In fact, 
three full weeks go by, and Daniel's, and God still hasn't answered Daniel's prayer. And Daniel, meanwhile, he's not eating or drinking anything but bread or water. He's not taking care of himself in any other way. He is just focused on prayer because he wants to know, God, what's going on in the world? What are you trying to tell me? And eventually, here's what happens in verse 5. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a man touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia." And came to make you understand what has happened to your what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. So what we see here is God has peeled back the curtain for Daniel and let him in on some of what's going on in the world around him that he couldn't ordinarily see. There's this battle going on. In fact, the whole reason that Daniel's prayer has not been answered more swiftly is there's a being called the Prince of Persia who has been withstanding the angelic messenger who was sent to answer Daniel's prayer. Who's the prince of Persia? Obviously not an earthly prince, obviously not a human being, because there's no human being who can withstand an angel and and do battle with an angel and hold him back from his his appointed purpose. 21 days, these two angelic or or supernatural entities are, are contending with each other, and then the archangel Michael shows up, and breaks up the fist fight, as it were. We don't know what that looked like uh, or how it happened, but that's what the Bible says. And that's a very intriguing concept because we don't have any details. Does this statement mean there are, that there was a particular demon assigned to the kingdom of Persia to try to keep the kingdom of Persia from good, from Uh, God's plan for them. That's certainly what it sounds like. If that's the case, is that standard practice uh, from the demonic realm? Are there demons that are assigned uh, to each nation on earth today? Is there a demon assigned to the United States? Is there a demon assigned further down the line to Montgomery County, to Conroe, to this church, to my family, your family, to us? We don't know. I can't make that case. What I do know is in Matthew 18.10, Jesus indicates that all of us have angels assigned by God to us individually, which is a very comforting notion. But it makes you wonder, why do we need those angels? 
Well, because there's an unseen realm. There are, there are forces that are arrayed against us. Um, another indication, Revelation 2 and 3, the very beginning of the book of Revelation. We think of Revelation as being about the end times, but it starts with seven letters that Jesus is dictating through the Apostle John, seven letters that were sent to seven churches that existed back then. And all of them, you, you can look it up, they're addressed to, not to the church at Ephesus, or to the pastor of the church at Ephesus, but to the angel of the church at Ephesus, as if it's to say, okay, my angelic messenger needs to get this message and make sure it's conveyed to the church, which makes it sound like there's an angel assigned to churches, to individual churches. Again, why do we need that? Well, obviously because there are forces of darkness that are arrayed against us. So again, an angel was sent to answer Daniel's prayer. This demonic entity of some kind, the prince of Persia, comes against him and stops him and keeps him from fulfilling his mission for 21 full days. Michael shows up to break it up and to set free the messenger. Now, why did God let this happen? Is this the reason why sometimes our, our prayers aren't answered as quickly as, as usual? I don't think that's the case, but maybe. I, I can't say for sure. What we do know is Daniel got a glimpse of unseen reality. It's like when we're kids, we don't know how cars run. I, I don't. I mean, when I was a kid, I just assumed that it was magic. My, my mom or my dad pressed the gas pedal and the car took off. But if your mom or dad stops and takes you around and opens the hood and shows you, hey, look, you see that big thing in the middle? That's an engine. And there are, there are small explosions going on inside that engine every time we press the gas pedal. And that's what powers the car. As a little kid, you probably won't be able to understand that, but you'll at least be able to say, oh, there's something going on underneath there in, a, in an area I can't see, and that's what makes the car go. That's what gives power or impact to this car that I'm sitting in. And that's what Daniel got a glimpse of the things that are going on behind the scenes that actually make things happen in this world. Now, there are other examples in Scripture of people getting this spiritual vision. Enoch, we know, and early in the book of Genesis, was a man who walked with God. Everybody else was focused on the things of this world, but Enoch was focused on God and his relationship with God, and God took him. He was one of two people in human history that we know of who never actually died. Abraham met with God several times. Once God came to him in the form of a human being, and actually shared his plans with Abraham. Hey, I've got to go judge those two cities down there, Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham bantered back and forth with God, negotiated in a sense to try to, try to change God's mind. Um, Jacob, Abraham's grandson, long before his wrestling match with the Almighty, which we talked about last week, uh, was camped out in a barren plain with a rock for a pillow, which sounds incredibly uncomfortable. But in the middle of the night, as he's sleeping, he has a dream in which he sees a ladder that stretches up to heaven and angels ascending and descending. It was a way of God saying, look, there's things going on. There's, there's a spiritual realm you don't know about. And Jacob was, I mean, up to this point, he'd been an absolute reprobate liar of a man, but he was changed after this. He actually changed the name of that place to Bethel, the house of God. Um, Elisha, this is one of my favorite stories. Elisha was once surrounded by enemy soldiers. He was in a city that was about to be invaded, but he wasn't afraid. His servant, on the other hand, was terrified. And Elisha said, Lord, open his eyes, meaning the servant. And suddenly the servant looked out and he saw 
thousands of enemy soldiers on the hills, but in the midst of them, he saw tens of thousands of angelic warriors. And this came a little while after Elisha himself had seen his boss, his mentor, Elijah, carried up into heaven in a chariot of fire. I skipped over Moses. Moses, of course, met with God in the form of a burning bush, and then later he set up a tent of meeting where he and the Lord would uh, would meet together on a regular basis, and, and Exodus says that God spoke to Moses the way a man speaks to his friend, spiritual vision. And then there's Peter, James, and John, a famous story of them going up at, uh, on top of Mount Hermon with Jesus. And remember, Jesus was an ordinary-looking man, nothing externally to commend him to us, and yet suddenly his body was transfigured. And Jesus took on the form of a supernatural being so radiant that you couldn't even look at him. They saw this with their eyes. And then decades later, John, as an old man, sees a similar vision of Jesus on the island of Patmos, and that's where we get our book of Revelation from. And Paul, here's the last example I'm going to give you. Paul was given a glimpse of the present heaven, of what paradise looks like right now. And he came back, and in 1 Corinthians, he said, I saw things so wonderful, I can't even come up with the words to describe them. So this is what I'm talking about when I talk about spiritual vision. And here's my definition. My spiritual vision definition is the constant awareness that something more is going on than what we can see, and the ability to live as if that unseen reality is more important than a material world. And I know that's a long definition, but I wanted to be precise because I don't want you to think that when I'm talking spiritual vision, I mean you've got to be able to tell the future or that you've got to be able to see angels or demons or that you've got to be able to hear the audible voice of God. That's not the case. I mean, God can do that. He may choose to do that for you or for me. What I'm saying is we need to, spiritual vision means living as if we know that realm exists and that the things that happen in that realm matter more than the things we can see. And so we live in such a way that we're constantly focused on spiritual things, not earthly things. Daniel, we, don't, we, we haven't spent a lot of time in the second half of the book of Daniel because from Daniel 7 to 10 is pretty much all prophecy. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, it's, it's the Word of God just as much as the first six chapters. But the focus of this sermon series has been on finding the character qualities in Daniel's life and in the lives of his friends that enabled them to make a difference because we're living in a hostile world today, just like Daniel and his friends were, and yet they were able to change their world, and I think that's our calling too, not to just survive, not to just hold on to what we have, but to change our world. And so we've been looking at what qualities that we see in Daniel do we need to ask God to place in us so that we can make a difference in the world around us. So we haven't focused on these prophecies, but let me sum up for you what Daniel foresaw in chapters 7 through 10. He saw the next 600 years of Middle Eastern history, Persian Empire falls, the Greeks take over, the Greeks are conquered by the Romans, Rome becomes the greatest empire in the world's history at that time. He saw the coming of the Messiah to earth, one like a son of man taking the scroll from God. He saw Jesus' enthronement in heaven when his earthly job was done. He saw the coming of the Antichrist and a great tribulation and the, the end of days. He saw the final victory of righteousness over evil. Daniel saw all of that. And we need what Daniel had. Again, not that we would be able to foretell the future. If God gives you the ability, God bless you, 
and, and use it for good. But I mean, I mean, we need the ability to live in constant awareness of this unseen world. And we'll discuss how we get that spiritual vision at the end of the message. But right now, I want to talk about why. Because I'm sure right now, if you're, some of you are listening to me and thinking to yourself, yeah, that may be fine, but I'm more of a B-team Christian. I don't think I actually need spiritual vision. I'll just follow the people who already have it. But that's no way to live. Let me tell you why. Two reasons why we need spiritual vision. Number one, spiritual vision keeps earthly matters in perspective. It helps us see the world through the eyes of God. You look at the stories that we've studied so far in this series, and you have to be amazed that Daniel and his three friends could respond to the kinds of pressures they were under with the kind of calm, with the kind of joy, with the kind of peace that they had. I mean, they were threatened with fiery furnaces and lion's dens. They had enemies uh, trying to find flaws in them so they could be accused, and yet they constantly responded with grace and calm. How did they do it? They did it because they had spiritual vision, because they knew this world is not the ultimate thing. And this may be a, a terrible analogy, but it's what my mind goes to. Uh, some of you know that I'm a big fan of U of H football, and, and my wife and I have uh, season tickets and have uh, for a long, long time. And so we go to all the home games. I sure hope there's home games this year at some point. Um, but 14 years ago, I remember this distinctly, my team lost a big game. Uh, not a big game, lost a game to a really bad team a team that we should have easily beaten, a game at home. I was there, and of course, it ruined my weekend. The next day, I got up and, and went to church because I was a pastor, and I'm sitting in church, and we're singing songs to the Lord, and I'm feeling just low. I, I mean, I'm in a terrible mood. It's like Carrie has left me and taken the kids and the dog and left me the cat. It's that bad. Um, and, and it's at that very moment... I had an epiphany. I had just this moment of clarity when God spoke to me, and, and I knew exactly what he was saying. Obviously not an audible voice, but what he said to me was, hey, if you're going to let a game played by 18 to 22-year-olds you don't even know impact your mood this way, then son, you've got an idol and you've got to deal with it. And if this idol of yours is going to get in the way of you being the husband and father you need to be, get in the way of you being the worshiper of me that you need to be, if you can't even come into my house and sing praises to me with a right heart because of something that happened at a game yesterday, then you're going to have to give that up. And that got my attention. And it was a reminder to me that keeping things in perspective is a big part of serving God. And, and in the same way, we have to learn to keep earthly matters in the proper perspective, and that's where spiritual vision comes in. Listen, I'm not saying that uh, when you're praying to God for healing for a health problem or you're, you're worried about your finances and whether you're going to lose your job or whether you've got these dreams and goals for the future and you're really working hard for them, I'm not saying that's as meaningless as a football game. But in relationship to eternity, maybe it is. Put it this way, on the day of judgment and forever after that, as we're walking the streets of heaven, we're not going to be worried anymore about most of the stuff we prayed about in this life. 
In fact, we're going to look back at some of the things we worried about and, and fretted about and focused on and wonder why we wasted so much time. See, Jesus had the audacity to stand in front of a group of people. We see this in Matthew 6. A group of people, almost all of whom lived on a, on a razor's edge of poverty where one bad harvest and they starved to death. One, one wiggle in the economy and they've lost everything. And he had the audacity to say to these people, don't worry about what you're going to eat or where you're going to live or what you're going to wear. And I'm sure the people there were thinking, well, why wouldn't I worry, Lord? I mean, what's bigger than that? And he said, just focus on me. Keep your eyes fixed on me. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness, and I'll take care of all that stuff. So when we have spiritual vision and we keep our eyes fixed on the things that matter, we keep our eyes fixed on the unseen world. We're able to keep earthly matters in perspective, and we're not dominated by fear and anger and worry. So the second thing, the second reason why we should seek spiritual vision, because spiritual vision keeps eternal matters in top priority. It keeps earthly matters in their proper perspective, but it also helps us put eternal matters, the things that last forever, at the top of our priority list. Again, look at the life of Daniel. How was Daniel able to live and work for decades in secular government, one of the most difficult areas to work in and maintain your integrity, and yet his integrity was flawless till the day he died? Why, why was he able to actually make a believer in God out of two pagan kings? Twice in his life, Daniel was able to take the most powerful man on earth at the time and introduce him to the one true God in such a way that, that that king became a believer in the God of heaven. Why? Because he was fixed on eternal things. He wasn't caught up in earthly things. That gave him the extraordinary spirit that Daniel's bosses in Babylon and Persia kept talking about. Let me quote again from, from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He, he taught us to lay up treasure in heaven. He said, don't waste your time building a treasure down here. Lay up treasure in heaven. Any treasure you build down here is going to go away. Any treasure you build up there is going to last forever. And we, even though we know that scripture and, and we believe in Jesus, most of us Christians in America, we do the opposite. We're focused on building a life that's imperishable down here. We want to try to we want to try to build uh, heaven on earth and eliminate all stress and all anxiety and all pain and discomfort and inconvenience. We want everything we want down here, and we're so fixed on that. I think a lot of us are going to get to heaven someday and recognize, yeah, I'm here by God's grace, but I don't have anything to bring with me. Yeah, uh, by the grace of God, I'm saved, but I don't have anything to show for my life. And I do believe there will be regret on Judgment Day, even among many people who are redeemed. And I do believe that, that we'll, be, we'll be sorrowful at times in eternity. Revelation 20 talks about God wiping every tear from our eyes. Why are we going to be weeping in heaven? I think some of it's going to be regret that we wasted our lives on earth. Why is it that, that churches today, so many churches, when you really look at it, we're more like spiritual spas than the New Testament church. Christians come here to get comforted, to, to be inspired, to be blessed, to get their needs met, and they walk away feeling good. Now, I'm not saying you should walk away feeling bad. I'm saying that churches should be more like launching pads than spas. You should come here 
and you should be motivated to change. You should come here and be involved in us, in, in this body of Christ, and it should, it should motivate you to change the world. This should be a launching pad for a group of people that goes and works alongside God, bringing peace to chaos through transforming relationships with people who are hurting. And that only happens, that only happens if we have spiritual vision. Because otherwise, it's just not going to seem worth it to us. We'd rather do things that benefit us in the here and now than to help people who are hurting, than to show the love of Christ to people who need it, unless we get spiritual vision, unless we gain that. So that's the why. Here's the how. How do we gain this spiritual vision? Well, I got good news for you. We have something that Daniel did not See, Daniel met with God on occasion. God would appear to him or an angel would come to him. And I'm sure that happened a handful of times in Daniel's life. But we have access to God all the time. Jesus in John 16, 7, one of my favorite verses. This is the night before he died. He said, let me assure you, it is better for you that I go away. I say this because when I go away, I will send the helper to you. But if I did not go, the helper would not come. Let me tell you why I love that verse. So as a Christian, ever since I first fell in love with Christ, I've always envied the disciples, and you're probably the same. I've always thought, man, how fortunate they were. These guys, uh, these men and women, got to spend uh, three years walking with Jesus, seeing him face-to-face, hearing his voice, and experiencing his presence. And I've never seen Jesus in my life, and I I would love to trade places with them. Well, Jesus was speaking, John 16, 7, to those people to the disciples. And he was saying, yeah, you should be glad I'm leaving because what you're going to get after I leave is better than what you've had up to now. Yeah, you've had face-to-face access with me for three years, but only when I'm awake and only when I'm not focused on someone else and only when you're actually physically in my presence. Whereas from now on, you're going to have access to me through the Holy Spirit anytime you want. I'm never going to leave you. I'm always going to be with you 24-7, 365, in every situation, no matter what you've done, no matter what you're facing, I'm with you and I'm walking with you. And so I think about it this way. I mean, here we've been talking about spiritual vision and the last thing I want is for you to to suddenly start seeing demons all around you and and start imagining that there's demonic uh, forces at work in everything that happens. And so you you become a fearful Christian, like a lot of Christians. You, You walk around praying prayers to bind Satan and, and, and to cast out demons from, from your boss or your, your ex or your child. We're never commanded to, to live like that. Instead, we're just commanded to follow God faithfully. I put it this way. If I'm a little kid and I know there's a bully waiting to beat me up on the way to school and my dad comes to me and says, hey, Jeff, I'll walk you to school and I'll take care of you. I don't worry about the bully anymore because I got my dad and he's bigger and he's stronger than the bully. Jesus says, just keep your eyes fixed on me. Keep your eyes fixed on me. Some of you have seen the movie Apollo 13. Some of you are older enough to remember when those events actually happened. 1970, the Apollo 13 spacecraft, it was intended to be a moon mission. They never actually got to the moon. They had a a terrible accident on the way there. Don't you dare say, Houston, you have a problem. That's a cliche. But they had to try to make it home with a a busted craft that wasn't working right. That's my scientific term. 
And at one point in the mission, I don't think this occurs in the movie, but at one point in the mission, they needed to make a course correction. Essentially, they were outside the earth and they were drifting off course. And if they kept drifting, then they were just going to drift out into space and be lost. And mission control back here in Houston said, hey, we need you to burn your engines at full throttle for 39 seconds to get yourself back on course. Problem was, ordinarily, their computer would have steered them in the right direction and, and, and kept them uh, in orbit. But now the computer was down. So if they burn their engines for 39 seconds, who's to say they were headed in the right direction? Well, Jim Lovell came up with a solution. This is something that you don't usually do in, in spaceflight. He said, I, what I'm going to have to do is just manually angle the craft in such a way that I can, I can visually see Earth in the little window that's in front of me. And as long as Earth is in that window, as long as my eyes are fixed on Earth, I know I'm headed in the right direction. So for 39 seconds, they kept the hammer down on the accelerator, so to speak, and burned towards Earth. And what a picture for us. Again, Hebrews 12.2, fix our, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That's the way we live. If my dad is walking me to school and there's a bully waiting for me, I don't worry about the bully. I just keep my eyes fixed on my dad. And if, if, if I walk off course, if I go my own way, if I just say, you know, dad, I'll meet you there. I want to go the way I want to go. That's, that's when I get my tail kicked, Right? All I got to do is keep my eyes fixed on him. So my question for you today is, do you need a course correction? Has your life gone off track? Have you gotten to the point where you rarely, if ever, think about the spiritual realm? Your life is totally caught up in earthly matters. Today's a great day to, to just humbly come before the Lord and say, Lord, put me back on track with you. Help me to fix my eyes on you. Help me to head in the direction you're going. And tomorrow morning, wake up and just start the day by fixing your eyes on Jesus and praying for him to help keep you there. And the next day, do the same thing. And it, it, the next day, the same thing. And it's a daily walk toward him. If you don't really understand how to do that, I'm using a lot of spiritual language and metaphors. I'd love to talk to you. Anybody on staff here would. Give us a call or send us an email. Even today, we're going to be checking our emails. If you've never had a personal relationship with Jesus, if he's just a concept to you or something you maybe nebulously believe in, but you don't really know him personally, please give us a call. Please send us an email. We'd love to talk to you. We'd love nothing more than that. If there's anything else you need, prayer, counsel, just someone to talk to, that's what we're here for. But I want to I just invite you to stick around for a moment because we're going to worship God some more, and that is very much worth our time. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you're in charge of everything. And this spiritual realm that seems so mysterious and scary to us, Lord, you are the one who is stronger, stronger than all the forces that want to do us harm. Help us to trust in you and to walk beside you and behind you. Lead us in the way that we need to go. And Lord, for those of us who are off course, I pray your Holy Spirit would convict us of that and that we would, we would repent and get right with you. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.